This podcast is brought to you by Friendly City Books, Columbus, Mississippi's independent bookstore. Learn more at FriendlyCityBooks.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Friendly City Books podcast. I am your host, Caroline, and with me today is author Clemence Michelon. Hi, Clemence. Hi, Caroline. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you again. Good to see you, too. Thank you for being here. Um, So Clemence was born and raised near Paris. She studied journalism at the City University of London, received a master's in journalism from Columbia University, and has written for The Independent since 2018. Her essays and features have covered true crime, celebrity culture, and literature. She moved to New York City in 2014 and recently became a U.S. citizen. Her book, The Quiet Tenant, is a pulse-pounding psychological thriller about a serial killer narrated by those closest to him, his 13-year-old daughter, his girlfriend, and the one victim that he hasn't killed. Maybe yet. We'll find out. Um, But it's a beautiful cover. We have been uh, hand selling it like crazy in the bookstore. We love it so much. Um, So I am so excited to be able to talk to you about it today. Oh, thank you so much. That really warms my heart. And thanks for this beautiful intro. Uh, It's always, I mean, it's always really, really special uh, and comforting for an author to hear that booksellers are really supporting a book. And I, I have, I'm so grateful. So thank you so much. Yeah, definitely. So um, for those who don't know, uh, Clemence was at the Mississippi Book Festival, uh, which is where we had the the opportunity to meet her. And it was just so fun because um, the three of the characters in this book are Rachel, Emily, and Caroline. And for those who don't know, uh, the three of us who work full time at the bookstore are Rachel, Emily, and Caroline. So when I was reading this book for the first time, I was like, oh, how funny is that? Rachel's the main character. Oh, how funny. There's also an Emily. And then I got to Caroline and I just nearly threw the book across the room because I was just like so scared at that point and I was just done for. Um, It was destiny. It was so (laughs) surreal for me to be able to pose for a picture at the beautiful Mississippi Book Festival with Caroline, Rachel, and Emily. (laughs) It was was the first time I'd had all three in the room with me. (laughs) I know. All we needed was a Cecilia and we'd have been done for at that point. And I I almost wish we had looked for one. There were a lot of people at this festival. (laughs) We should have done an all call. Just like anybody here, anybody. Uh, But that has definitely been one of the reasons that we have been so excited about it at the bookstore. Obviously, it is an incredible book. It is so well written. And it is just such a just heart pounding read. I could not stop reading it. I just, I mean, I was genuinely stressed out the whole time reading it because there's just this like, it's just insidious nature that carries through the whole book of just this like nothing is okay we're not okay there's danger at every turn like I was just so on edge but it was so much fun and I just I it is the perfect spooky season read I truly believe like if you're out there and you're looking for a spooky book this is the one for the year at least it's so good Thank you so much. This is such a great sell for the book. (laughs) And I love hearing that. Yeah. So um, I did want to ask you a couple of like, you know, questions about your writing process and what it's like to be an author. Um, But so first things first, you have had such an incredible career as a journalist. Uh, What made you take the jump into fiction writing? 
Uh, it's such a good question. And I was trying to think. And I think for me, uh, fiction was always there in the background. Uh, but basically, I was seven years old when you know, a primary school teacher had us do what was my first creative writing exercise. And it was the most fun I'd ever had in my life. And I was like, this is awesome. And I came home and proclaimed that I wanted to, 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 to be a novelist, uh, when I, you know, later in life. And I was informed <laughs> that it was not a reliable career path. <laughs> and I, <laughs> And I needed to find a proper job. And so I was like, well, what's a proper job where I can write? And I think it was one of my parents who was like, well, you, you know, you could be a journalist. Um, and then later on, I think they would have preferred if I became a lawyer, because it seems safer. Journalism <laughs> isn't like a very secure career path either. Uh, but I went for journalism. And so I started my professional life as solely a journalist and uh, with still this aspiration to write fiction in my spare time. And then um, over time, uh, fiction started finding its way into my life again. It just took, it takes time to get good enough at it that you can publish. It takes a lot of time. And so, um, so while I was working my, my first jobs in journalism, I was writing in my spare time and that led me to publish a, a, a not a, not a thriller, a, a literary novel in French with an independent feminist press in France in September of 2020. And then the quiet tenant in, uh, June of this year. Yes. And, mm -hmm. um, but, but it was, it was, you know, a longer process and, and, having my career in journalism, I've always done journalism as a writer. I've never been like a broadcaster or, or anything uh, like that. It was a way for me to learn how to write professionally. Uh, you know, with journalism, the writing, you really switch it on and off, right? Like I, I sit down and the news is happening and I have to write <laughs> and I'm on deadline constantly. And that's a very healthy habit to build if you want to be a novelist. Mm -hmm. um, so, and just this idea of like, it's almost like being on a treadmill when you want to run marathons, right? Like journalism is the treadmill and the novels are race day, <laughs> you know, oh, the marathon. Yeah. Uh -huh. Um, it's just because you're, I'm, I was writing constantly and it just, it takes a lot of writing to get good enough to, to then write books. Mm -hmm. That is so fascinating. And you mentioned obviously that you had written a book in French as well. Um, what is that one about? Oh, that one is uh, about a female bodybuilder who is a few weeks away from the most important competition of her life and career. And she uh, suddenly ends up in a position where she has to manage her sister's bakery, which is a problem because there's no time. You know, bodybuilders live very heavily regulated lives mm -hmm. and it's hard to manage a business at the same time. Uh, and also, you know, she's around baked goods all day, so it's not mm -hmm. compatible. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, but it's, what's interesting is it's about bodies and control and agency. And I think these are themes that we find again in the quiet tenant. Mm -hmm. And I remember that was in one of my earliest editorial discussions about the book. Uh, the acquiring editor of my novel in the U S was asking me about my French novel and, and that came up and it was like, oh yes, bodies, control, <laughs> agency. We see some, some threads here, even though the books are super different. Yeah, absolutely. And how different was it for you writing a book in French versus writing a book in English? 
At first, I think it was weird for the first chapter of mm-hmm. the quiet, of the first draft of the Quiet Tenant, um, because it was like walking in heels for the first time, or <laughs> um, you know, it was just like trying something a little different. Maybe if you've always skied, then suddenly you're on a snowboard, and the environment's the same, but the, 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 just the core of it is pretty different. I had previously finished a novel length work. I, I am reluctant to call it a novel in English, right out of grad school that was never published. Um, and then I wrote my French novel and then I wrote the quiet tenant. Um, so I had some familiarity with, you know, writing in English a lot and I do it for my job as a journalist, I write in English. And Mm -hmm. even that before that, as a student, I'd done it, but there is something in fiction where you have to find your voice. Mm -hmm. And that's the case whether you're writing in your native language or in a second language, you still have to find your voice. Mm-hmm. And so once the initial awkwardness dissipated and I, I just, my brain accepted that we were doing this in English this time, I think the work of finding the voice of the novel was pretty similar uh, to what most authors uh, would need to do when starting a new project. You always have to kind of like play around with it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you also had told me at the book festival that your book, The Quiet Tenant, is now being translated into French by a French translator. And so you've been working with that person to kind of adapt the story into yet another voice for the French market. Uh, what is that like? Yeah, that's that's so cool. Um, I, I'm so I'm I'm happy that I'm not translating it myself. By the way, because <laughs> uh, it was I, I did wonder. I was like, oh, should I translate it? And um, and it was much better to, to, to leave it to the prose. You know, translation is an art. And it was so fascinating. My French translator, who is amazing, uh, sent me a sample chapter of the translation of the novel just to see early on if we agreed, you know, if I had any comments on how she was approaching the text. Mm-hmm. And I thought she had done a better job at at capturing the voice than like, like ten, a thousand times better a job <laughs> than I would have. And also that the translation of my American novel in French, I'm like, damn, I wish I could write like this in French. <laughs> like, it's really, really good. And, yeah. and I don't really write like this when I write in French. I, I, like it's, it, it's funny. The voice is a little uh, different when I write directly in French. Um, mm-hmm. So it's quite, it's quite captivating, but I think there's a musicality to English that, that, that I love. And so I find that when I'm writing in English and I have fun mm-hmm. with that. And so then if you retranslate into French, it, 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 it works its way into the French version of, of the text. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, the story itself feels so universal to women, um, but do you think that the story will feel as true to American women as it, or do you think it will feel as true to French women as it does for American women? I hope so. Uh, mm-hmm. I hope that they will. I, I've been very lucky in that the novel has been received very generously in the U.S. Uh, and a lot of readers have understood what I was trying to do with this book. Uh, and uh, and it's been a very special experience in that way. Um, I have to think, unfortunately, the experiences of violence or of um, being made to feel not at home in your body. Un- unfortunately, I, I, I think it's relatively universal. So mm. I, I would think that a French reader would know 
what I'm talking about when I'm talking about those things. Um, but I think it's interesting to see how readers react to similar novels across uh, countries. The French readers are are very special and interesting. So um, I'm very curious to see what they're going to think. Obviously, I hope they like it. Yeah. Uh, but but I'm sure they're gonna they're gonna bring up things I didn't think about and have just see it in in in, in a way that hadn't occurred to me. So I'm mm-hmm. and I and I can see it when I talk about movies and books with my French relatives. They always bring up something that I hadn't uh, hadn't thought about. So I'm yeah. looking forward to that. Yeah, that's going to be super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like your journalistic talent and your know-how for telling stories really, really shines in the way that you crafted both the story of The Quiet Tenant, but also the characters um, and how real they felt. But I was curious about how your journalistic experience might have played into the research for this book and also its inspiration. Well, first of all, thank you so much. That's very kind. That's a very kind thing to say. I really appreciate that. Um, I think there are a couple of ways um, that my background as a journalist served me, but it was also something I had to manage. Um, So I cover true crime, among other things, as a journalist. And I sat down to write a crime novel and I thought, well, I have to set a boundary, you know, between these two worlds, my journalism mm-hmm. work and my work as a novelist. And the deal with myself was it's okay to build a library of personal knowledge, right? I have researched a lot of true crime stories. I have spoken to people who have been through things. I have written about them and their experiences. And all of this is in my brain and it's floating around and it's impacted how I see the world and how I think about crime and punishment and all, and, and all that. Mm-hmm. What I didn't want was for the book to come out and then I sit down to interview someone for, for an article and then they have to worry that something is going to show up in a book, right? I never want yeah. that to happen. So I want to keep it separate a little bit. Um, so I tried to really set that slightly aside and then to just let my novelist brain take the lead. Mm-hmm. But that library of knowledge does, does exist in my brain. And one of the things that fascinates me in my work as a journalist is that so much of journalism is trying to understand how the world moves, um, why people do what they do, how they become who they are. Uh, and obviously these are all uh, mechanisms that we need to think about when crafting a book. How does a character become who they are on the page? Uh, how is the plot going to move? Uh, and how, um, how are people going to interact with each other and, and, and impact uh, one another's lives? Um, so, so it's made me seeing the world in a certain way and, and looking for, for, for all those, those, co- those causal links between things that then come in handy when you're trying to plot a story. The, the, the difficult thing is fiction needs to make more sense than reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, in reality, you can say, well, it just happened that way, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Or it's, 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 it was completely fortuitous and it was a huge coincidence, but it happened that way. And so that's interesting. In fiction, that's the least interesting thing. Like you can't <laughs> just... <laughs> You can't just say, well, it was a huge coincidence, but uh, the protagonist won the lottery. And so it was fine in the end. <laughs> you know? like you can't, everything has to, uh, has to make sense. Every, everything has to, you know, every event has to have 
a consequence and then we deal with the consequence of that event, et cetera, et cetera. So in a way it's funny because I feel like I have more control over the narrative as a novelist than I do as a journalist. Cause obviously as a journalist, I have to stick to reality. It's frowned upon to make, make stuff up. Um, but also it fric- fiction can be constricting in its own way because it mm-hmm. has to make sense. Yeah. And, and I feel like your experience having this kind of like analytical processing, the like the instincts to ask the right questions to get where you need to go to create the narrative, like all of that comes from journalism and that kind of idea of, you know, how do we act? Like, who do we talk to to find out this is correct? How do we explore this path? How do we, you know, get that primary source like all of that i feel like is such a cool skill that not every author has but you do yeah yeah it's 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 really useful it's really helpful like i think it really has shaped my brain in a way that 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 i'm grateful for because it's helpful also in both cases journalism and writing fiction the biggest tool we can use is empathy um, if I'm talking to somebody, the, the, the way I always try to approach an interview is to just have a conversation. I have a list of questions, of course, but I will deviate from it and I will change the order, whatever. Um, or because sometimes the conversation needs to go into an unexpected direction. And that's when the really interesting things, uh, are going to surface. Uh, and, uh, similarly in fiction, uh, when you sit down to write a novel, you have to be prepared to treat every character with empathy, which doesn't mean sympathy. That's a distinction that, um, the author Paul Tremblay brings up a lot because he writes horror. So he also uh-huh. has to deal with characters who do, <laughs> complicated things. And, um, he, he says it a lot in interviews and, uh, and I, I admire Paul very much in his work as well. And when I was working on the quiet tenant, this distinction between empathy and sympathy was always on my mind, especially when I was working on my serial killer character, Aiden, Mm -hmm. I had to have empathy in terms of, I had to understand to a degree who he is and why he, why he is that way and why he does the things he does. Uh, and obviously that doesn't mean, uh, making excuses for him or, um, or sympathizing with him. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I, I was so struck by the voices of the women that Aiden murdered. Um, and they become kind of this chorus that carries throughout the story. Um, and so often in true crime, the victims themselves do not have a voice to tell their own story. And without that primary source, what's going on in their mind, their feelings, their their truths and their true selves are really lost. Um, and even though he's like a very constant, pervasive, looming threat throughout the entire book and you feel him on every page, Aiden doesn't get his own voice here. Um, and so I just wanted to know if you could tell me a little bit about that balance of voices in The Quiet Tenant and your choice to give women the complete and total narrative. Yeah, I love talking about that because it was such a big part of this novel for me was choosing uh, which voices were going to tell it, which characters were going to get a voice on the page, and which one wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And I knew from the start that Aiden would not get to speak. So 
the novel, for people who haven't read it, is told in alternative points of view. Uh, like Caroline said earlier, there's there there are three main ones. There's our serial killer's teenage daughter, a victim he's holding captive but hasn't killed, and a woman who doesn't know he's a serial killer and who has a crush on him, and he's gonna and 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 he's is gonna try to get closer to him not realizing what she's walking into. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a few others. Uh, we hear from Aiden's past victims uh, in shorter chapters. And um, so I knew from the get-go that Aiden would not get a voice, unlike all of these female characters. All the voices are female. Um, there were two reasons for that. One came from my true crime consumption and, uh, and the hours I have spent listening to FBI interviews of various serial killers. Um, and, and serial killers are not the best source about their uh, own crimes or about their own lives. Um, mm-hmm. They lie, they obfuscate, <laughs> they don't want to talk about the things we really want to talk about. Um, sometimes those tapes become interesting, but it, it's very short passages that need to be contextualized. But I, but I didn't feel that hearing Aiden talk about his crimes would be particularly illuminating. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the more meaningful reason is that when we are trying to think about those violent crimes, I think it's so much more informative to think about them in this holistic, real-world way. Of they, they're not just happening in the perpetrator's mind. Mind, they're, they're happening to people who know other people. Like it's it's disturbing a much bigger uh, world than just the the interior life of the of the perpetrator. Right. Um, who is it happening to, and what are the consequences? And the consequences are are far and wide. Uh, you know, there are the people who are killed or harmed, and the people who knew the perpetrator but didn't realize what they were doing, who are victimized also to a degree like that has always captivated me this idea that you know ted bundy had a a live-in partner for a number of years and she wrote a memoir called the phantom prince and it was re-released in 2020 early 2020 Mm -hmm. and it's really it's really illuminating and she had suspicions that he was the killer who was murdering women in their area. And she had tried to call the cops on him a couple of times and no one would mm. believe her. And, um, but there was still a day, right. When he was arrested and her life was never the same. She was thrust into this role as Ted Bundy's former girlfriend, mm-hmm. which she had never asked for. She was just trying to live a normal life. Uh, and life goes on. That's, that's what boggles the mind is for all these infamous serial killer stories. You know, there was a day when someone came home and the police knocked at the door and informed them that their partner or relative or whatever, it was a terrible serial killer. And like, they still had to go to work. They still had to support themselves. The taxes mm-hmm. were still due that year. Like, it's just, I can think about this for hours on end and just, just, uh, so this idea of, um, trying to tell the story of a man like Aiden through the the perspectives of the people, the most affected by his crimes, mm-hmm. uh, seemed to me much more rife for exploration than if he had just told the story. Cause we know why he kills. Right. He, it, th- there's no, he's one of those serial killers who kills because he enjoys it. Um, there's not a ton of depth there. Right. Um, it's not very interesting to, to 
plunge. <laughs> There's not that many depths to plunge on the on the page here. Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. I, as somebody who has, you know, dabbled in reading true crime and listening to true crime podcasts and documentaries, um I know that there is kind of this conversation happening about um, centering the victims in our conversations about true crime and not looking at these things from this voyeuristic, almost like you're enjoying it a little too much kind of idea of like, let's get deep in the mind of this killer and instead looking at the whole picture like you were talking about. And so I think that this book is a really great example of, even though it's fictionalized, how we can do that and how we can frame stories around specifically the women who are experiencing these these horrible things. Because while this is fiction and while it happens in this kind of vacuum of this novel, these are women who remind me so much of women that I have heard about in true crime. Um, and as a whole, I mean, these are characters that they feel so real that like I'm reading them thinking, I have been this girl. I have been this woman. I know these people. And it that that reality that is tapped into this book makes it, I think, speak to such a larger theme, which is the true crime genre as a whole in a way. Yeah, I'm so glad you bring this up because I should actually credit my own true crime consumption. Uh, also, when the question of the female perspectives uh, comes up, um, I listen to a bunch of podcasts, I watch documentaries, I I, I consume true crime, and I, and I I always have I think since I was like 12. Um, but uh, there was actually in early 2020 a documentary that was released as a companion to the memoir uh, by Ted Bundy's former girlfriend. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the documentary is called Falling for a Killer. And it's a Ted Bundy documentary. And I remember it came out after the Ted Bundy tapes on Netflix. And it was like, there was a period of time where a renewal of, of Ted Bundy media uh, around early 2020. And, and I remember when, when this new one came out, I was like, really do we need another one do we truly need another one and yes we did mm -hmm. and we needed that one um the, the the that documentary uh was really well done it it shifted the perspective away from him and uh towards uh his victims and the people who knew him uh so i believe his brother is interviewed in it i didn't even know he had a brother um he has a surviving victim who uh, participated in the documentary his former girlfriend elizabeth uh is interviewed her daughter whom he lived with uh, you know he lived with both of them for for some years also spoke and it was a total it was the ted bundy story like i had never heard it it right. was like, you know, exploded into all these pieces and suddenly he wasn't Ted Bundy. He was this man who existed in this environment and knew all these people and he did those things and then left a trail of devastation in his wake. Mm -hmm. And and it was it's it's it was it's really hard to make you see a story you've heard told dozens of times uh, under a new perspective. Mm -hmm but this documentary did it. And I thought that was so powerful and it really made an impact on me. And, and I had that in mind when I chose how to tell my own serial killer story for sure. And yeah. which isn't to bash by the way, the Ted Bundy documentaries that came <laughs> beforehand, like mm -hmm. 
I watched the Ted Bundy tapes and I, I thought it was well, like I, I thought it was really interesting. I was riveted. Um, so it's not to say I'm above the others. I just mm -hmm. thought if we were going to add another documentary to that shelf, then falling for a killer to me was, was really well done because of that perspective shift. Yeah. When you were writing The Quiet Tenant, was the idea always to have this kind of chorus of voices or was the focus initially on one particular character? Yeah, you ask the right question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so at first it was going to be just um, the voice of Rachel. Mm -hmm. Uh, so she is the captive victim who was abducted by Aiden, but then, uh, he's, she's the one victim he couldn't kill. So he, he, he keeps her instead, uh, first in his garden shed and then, uh, in his house. Mm -hmm. Um, and at first it was going to be only her perspective. And I started working on, uh, on the novel with just her voice and her voice was the first one that really sort of spoke to me. And, um, the problem was um, that she only sees one side of him and it's right. the side of him that he wants to show her. It's the dangerous side, the all powerful side, because he literally has power of life and death over her all the time. So mm -hmm. he's from her perspective, he's a, he's a, he's an all powerful, terrifying figure. Um, but one evening I was out walking my dog whom you can see actually right now on the screen, taking a nap, <laughs> pretending to be an angel. <laughs> I, was, I was walking my dog, Claudine, and, um, and I was listening to a, a party tunes from the nineties called Baila Baila Comigo. Not at all thrillery. I was like, not trying to plot my book. And suddenly out of nowhere, I had an idea. And I was like, what if there was another voice, another perspective? And there's this woman who's, who doesn't know Aiden's a serial killer and who has this huge crush on him. And she's gonna, she's gonna like try to shoot her shot, you know? <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> and I was like, Ooh, that's really interesting. And I never have ideas out of nowhere like that. Usually I'm, I, I'm someone who has to really massage an idea and work it out bit by bit. So mm -hmm. on the rare occasion that inspiration strikes, I listen and I was very dramatic about it. I remember I talked about it to a friend. I was like, maybe it's just because because it's new that it looks, it sounds exciting. And she was like, you know, you could just try it. And if it doesn't work, you'll erase the pages. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah we'll really erase the pages. It'll be fine. And so, <laughs> so I tried it and that's how I added the perspective of Emily. Mm -hmm. So, and I never looked back once I added Emily, Emily's the, the, the character who has the crush on Aiden and tries to get closer to him. And, and, and it was irresistible, this narrative of worlds colliding. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and it was important to have Emily's perspective too, because she sees Aiden as a man in the world and she is, she, she is obsessed with him and she's infatuated with him, but he doesn't have powerful like he's not this all-powerful figure i mean it's a different kind of power mm -hmm. so it was interesting to see him that way and then i thought well if these two women get to speak then aiden's daughter should get to speak because she sees him from yet another angle mm -hmm. um his he he is her dad and in the novel he's the only parent she has left it's not a spoiler that's in the that's in the flash copy yeah. <laughs> um uh, aiden is recently uh, widowed when when the novel starts and and um 
and so she was also Cecilia, the daughter, was the 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 only character who could tell uh, bits of family history. Mm-hmm. and show him as a family man because Aiden's late wife with whom you share your namesake <laughs> <laughs> uh, doesn't have uh, chapters she could have on second thought maybe she should have uh, <laughs> I don't know if I want to know honestly <laughs> yeah, I'm like have. I feel like Caroline like she right. got off a little Scott clean a little bit so I'm like you know she, she, well I was fascinated because Caroline I think the way she's written I know some people have had various interpretations of this and like, I don't want to invalidate them. However, people read the text is absolutely fine with me. I've always thought of her as someone who like, she's the only one who gets to have her vision of Aiden go unvarnished. Mm -hmm. Right. Like she knew him as a certain kind of man and she wasn't around when it unraveled. And, uh, and it's always sort of, uh, fascinated me. But so we have these three main perspectives. And then I thought, well, <laughs> if, the, if these three ones are talking, then we should hear from Aiden's former victims who are dead mm-hmm. because they have yet another perspective. Um, and also to me, that was a way to tell the story of how Aiden became the killer he is when the novel starts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the only sort of backstory I was ready to give was the backstory that his daughter and his victims would know, right. uh, not the backstory that he would have shared uh, voluntarily. But 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 if you read his former victims chapters, I hopefully you can see him evolve as a killer and understand what makes him tick and when he kills. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, to me, Rachel, the the woman who Aiden has been held holding hostage for years, really is not only the heroine of the book, but she is the heart of the book too. Like how you were talking earlier about empathy, I feel so much of that in the creation of Rachel, especially. Like Ra- Rachel is, I mean, she is formidable in her own right, which I really loved that there was this idea that even though Aiden had this full and total and complete power over her, she was still able to outsmart him, convince him by making him think that it was his own idea. I mean, she really like was a, you know, on any other playing field, she would have been far surpassed his equal. But in this case, I mean, she she had the the capacity to at least fight back a little bit, even in these small kind of ways. Um, but I I was just there were so many times with Rachel where I was just devastated reading her story. I mean, she is she's essentially grieving the loss of her own life. I mean, there's a scene where she sees herself in the mirror for the first time in five years and gets this real tangible like evidence of time's passage and it is so devastating um and i was just wondering were there any particular maybe people in true crime or or victims of true crime that inspired rachel or did she come from just your own kind of reflection as a kind of amalgamation of people um First of all, thank you for really seeing her as a yeah. character. Uh, she was really, I, I, it was really hard for me when I was done working on the novel. Uh, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do if I can't hang out with her every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, she really was a very, very, very special character for me. Um, and, and yeah, it was, it was really hard to move on after I was like, good luck, whatever I write next. Cause, uh, <laughs> this lady is pretty special. Mm -hmm. Um, um, but to more seriously answer your question, 
um, I, I, I'm trying to remember, and I, I there wasn't a singular true crime inspiration in terms of I didn't model her after like a specific living person. Mm-hmm. However, I do not want to discount the influence of the narratives of survival that I read about. Mm-hmm. And because when I was trying to create the character of Rachel, the enigma I had to try to solve was what's resilience. And, uh, the answer I, I ended up with was resilience is a weird mix of just endurance and just going through whatever is happening, even if it's horrible one minute at a time, mm-hmm. uh, which is both a very active and a very passive thing to do. And then occasional bursts of like, unimaginable uh intelligence and courage Mm -hmm. um and always trying to evaluate risk uh while all this is is unfolding so i was i did read about just just to have them not while actively while i was writing but just in Mm -hmm. my spare time around the time that i was working on the book uh i would revisit stories i'd heard about uh of women or girls who were abducted and held captive to try to understand what their lives had been like during their captivity so in and some of them are actually referenced in the quiet tenant either directly by name or by description so mm-hmm. natasha kompush who uh was this austrian uh is this austrian woman she was abducted when she was a girl and held captive for years by this man. And then one day uh, he asked her to, he told her to uh, clean his car and she was vacuuming the car and he stepped away to make a phone call and she left the vacuum on and she bolted. And, and then that's how she escaped. And mm-hmm. I forget exactly how many years she had been held captive by that point, but it had been years. So yeah. it was this idea of, well, for most of her captivity, her focus was on survival mm-hmm. until she saw the, what ended up being the perfect chance to escape. Right. Right. And then, she, so it was this mix of, 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 of enduring what was happening, but also looking for the perfect opportunity. Uh, and so staying aware, uh, you know, attuned to these possibilities. There was also the three women in Cleveland, if I'm correct. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I, I'm always worried that I'm going to say the wrong city. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of sea cities in, in Ohio. So yes. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm always worried I'm going to say the wrong city or the wrong states. A lot, a lot of worries. Um, <laughs> so the, the, the three women in, in Cleveland, Ohio, who, who escaped, I think it was, I mean, I know it was in the early 2010s because I remember yeah. I was working as an intern, as a journalist, and I covered their story wow. uh, for a French, uh, the website of a French radio station at the time. Um, and uh, so their stories also, because they had each been abducted separately and then held captive together, uh, really just was on my mind and it was similar. It was, they were held captive for a long period of time. And so one day it was like, oh, the, he left and the door was this way and they managed, one of them managed to scream. And so, so this idea of, of, of it's a long captivity and then the planets align. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and, 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 but also that I was, I figured 
you would always wonder if you're being too careful or too reckless. Like it would be really hard to know. So that was really on my mind when I worked on Rachel. Yeah. Um, and I mean, Cecilia too is such a huge variable of Rachel's story as well as the, the Cecilia story of her own. Um, but so, I mean, when I realized that Aiden had a daughter, I was genuinely sick to my stomach. Like I was unwell finding that out. I was like, oh no, this is not okay. And I think that in many ways, Rachel really felt the exact same way that I did. Like what this is. And suddenly now her escape plan involves this 13 year old girl who she is like, I know who he is or who he can be. And I can't leave her with him. And she can't have this life with him. And um, so I was kind of wondering if in your mind, was Cecilia kind of a catalyst or an encouragement for Rachel's moment of escape? Or was she kind of this variable that almost maybe complicates it or both? Yeah, this is the perfect question. Uh, first of all, it's always daughters. Yeah. Um, serial killers like Aiden, who is he's modeled after, I think, an archetype that we've we, we now know quite well in, mm -hmm. in, in contemporary America. Uh, you know, the, the well-respected man who has a double life. Yeah. Um, if you look at real life examples of this, it's always daughters. They always have daughters. I don't know why, but um, <laughs> I wish they didn't. But it's true. It's like it's unbelievable. And and usually those stories are kind of like I mean it's it's challenge it, it's it's challenging. I, I I think the archetype is ooh he was such a good family man and then he did all this on the side and the the compartmentalization was perfect. But I think we're starting to see that the compartmentalization isn't always perfect and they are very uh, you know when you have this this complicated of a personality you can't really it's hard to you know the, the their two lives are not always separated all that well and right and their temperament is is uh is isn't squeaky clean around their families and then and then uh, you know they, they, i think it's it's more complicated than that um cecilia and Rachel's relationship was always very central for me. When I started thinking of the earliest versions of this novel in my head, the idea that the captor would have a daughter and that he would to a degree underestimate or even not really think ahead of the, the, the bond that would form between his victim and his daughter yeah. was very interesting for me. Mm -hmm. um, but I think Cecilia helps Rachel work towards her own escape because she, there are parts of Rachel that needs to be awakened for her to really work towards an escape. She needs to sort of reclaim her identity, um, reactivate the sort of the, the parts of herself that believe she's worthy of being saved. Mm -hmm. uh, and that happens with Cecilia because she's the only person that Rachel has access to with whom she can have the experiences of kindness, of spontaneity, of, mm -hmm. um, of the absence of cruelty, um, yeah. of not everything has to be strategized, not everything has to be transactional. At the same time, she is very much an obstacle because Rachel has to deal with the fact that if she escapes, she's going to ruin this girl's life. Mm-hmm possibly in multiple ways 
But even in the best case scenario, she's going to end this girl's life. Now, it might seem to us like, well, yeah, okay, of course, like, but, but, but who cares? You have to escape. Yeah, sure. But if you're in Rachel's head, it's not that simple. This is the first person who's been nice to her in five years. Right. It's not that easy to, to, to destroy that person emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and Rachel throughout, I feel like, has such a care and concern for other women. Um, There are parts in the book, and I don't I don't really think this is a spoiler, but where Aiden brings her trinkets that are essentially trophies from his other kills. And she has this intense survivor's guilt. That's why are these other women being killed while I'm here in the shed or in this house? And how do I feel about the fact that I haven't been able to stop him, even though I know who he is and that he's doing this? And that unpacking all of that was just so just like, I don't even know where to begin. I it just but Rachel is a character who leads first with love and compassion and empathy for other women. And she understands the consequences of Aiden's cruelty. And she sees the greater picture of it, not just what's happening to her. Yeah, I think when people are exposed, even in in like less dramatic scenarios, but even in our personal lives or in our professional lives, or I think when people are exposed to cruelty um, or bullying or um, harm, they can react one of two ways. They can repeat it. repeat the cycle, or they can have, they can react in opposition to it and, um, really endeavor not to treat other people the way they've been treated. Mm-hmm. And I think Rachel, Aiden is not the only thing that has happened to her. She has a past. She's been hurt before in ways that are more, less headline making, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and more universal. Um, and I, and I think, uh, her experiences of other people's callousness or cruelty or dismissal of her uh, humanity has prompted her to see all of that in other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she has reacted in opposition to the bad things that have happened to her. And survivor's guilt seemed inevitable um, in this scenario. I mean, it would be absolutely devastating. You know, she's the only living person who knows he's a serial killer. Right. And she can't do anything about it. it it's it, it's a form of psychological torture. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seemed unavoidable that she would um, she would wonder about those other women. It, it would yeah. be chilling. Yeah. Who wrote this? It's devastating. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Um, well, we, we talked about her a little bit earlier, but I really want to talk about Emily, too, because Emily is probably the character that gave me the most anxiety. Um, she is <laughs> yeah. maybe, you know, Rachel's circumstances are so vastly more dire, but Emily is in so much danger all the time and she has no idea and i was actively screaming at my book to tell her to get away from this man and i just she nearly gave me a panic attack multiple times like i'm sorry I mean, on her behalf i apologize <laughs> 
I mean, she is she is so in love with Aiden. She she sees him as this upstanding member of the community, this tragic single father, and she wants so desperately to be seen by him and loved by him. And she thinks that she is playing this cat and mouse kind of relationship with him, this pursuit. And she thinks that she's the cat, but he is a tiger and he is coming for her. And I just, it was, it was so well done, but at the same time, like really did me in. Um, and it was interesting talking to Rachel, who works at our bookstore, Rachel, um, <laughs> who also read this book and really connected with the character of Emily. And she talked about how, you know, we as women have kind of, there's very few of us who have never been around a man who probably has uh, behind the scenes isn't who we think he is and how you kind of, you have to kind of put this trust out there to in the dating world, but also just in general life that you really never know who people are behind closed doors, but how, you know, looking at men and being like, I could maybe fix this guy or I could maybe, you know, and, um, and I so, can fix him. I can fix this guy. Yes. Um, um, so I just wanted to know kind of your thought process. I mean, we talked a little bit before, but just Emily as a character is just so fascinating and, and how it seems like you got this idea for her and then you just ran with it. And it is so crazy, but so good. Yeah, she's I, I I have a lot of compassion for my character Emily and mm. Emily who works at your store. <laughs> <laughs> um but my character Emily, I, I my poor Emily. Uh she the thing with Emily is um the only reason she goes into quite a, a tailspin in the novel is because the guy she's trying to date is running extremely low on empathy and is, 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 is acting in a way that is very casually cruel with mm -hmm. her. Uh, I do think that the cruelty that Aiden brings to his crimes, he brings into his attitude as a, as a, as a potential love interest for, for Emily. Um, and so Emily is a character that is all want, <laughs> all need, mm -hmm. all neuroses all the time. <laughs> Um, she proofreads her texts obsessively. And then if something goes wrong, she's like, Oh my God, what'd I do? Was it, was it this emoji that was wrong? Or, and it's yeah. like, no, Emily, it's because he's a serial killer. <laughs> he's busy. He's committing yeah. murders. Sorry. <laughs> There's so much going on that you don't know about, but, but it, to me, it was very, um, revealing to write this uh, perspective of a woman who is trying to date this, obviously this, this extremely um, uh, malfunctioning guy mm -hmm. and blaming herself to a degree whenever something goes wrong uh, without realizing that obviously there are so much bigger things going on and it's, it's none of it is her fault. Right. Mm -hmm. And, but we know um, it was quite liberating because I think this is a scenario that plays out uh, on less dramatic scales all the time in real life. Mm -hmm. um, but also I think, I think her, she, her, her behavior isn't that out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. And I think she's being pushed to her limits because again, Aiden plays mind games. Uh, he's very available at first. That's like a form of love bombing, I think. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then he withdraws and that's, quite violent. I think to, it would be quite violent to experience. And, mm -hmm. 
And so she's, yeah, she's, she kind of like does what she has to do to be able to sleep at night. And I don't judge her for it. Um, and, uh, but she, she is some, a character who is, uh, I think she's in the novel. She is being punished for things that we shouldn't be punished for. Uh, her extreme um, interest for someone she knows a little bit, her desire to believe that uh, there really is someone in her community who is good and interesting and exciting, uh, her desire to invite someone into her life, her need for connection, her need for, to be seen. Um, none of these are bad things, uh, right. but because it happens with, like you so aptly said, with a guy who's a tiger and she's a cat, um, then she, she does end up being punished for it, uh, in a way that, that isn't really, uh, fair, but, and, and yeah, and she's been hurt in exactly the right ways that make her very liable, uh, to, 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 to respond to what seems appealing about him. Right. And and Aiden is first and foremost a hunter. He yeah. knows what he's looking for in a woman and how to manipulate that and get what he wants, which is ultimately complete and total power over this person. Um, exactly. You got that perfectly. Yeah. I, I was also curious, and I, I'm i going to try to keep this very vague because I don't want to spoil things, but there is a point in the book where Emily does discover who Aiden truly is. She The mask is kind of torn off. And I was wondering, so when I read it, I sort of interpreted Emily as this kind of, um, like, a, I don't want to say denial, but this kind of really a struggle to really grapple with the being presented with this truth. Um, and I, I didn't know if that was an accurate representation of what actually happened. Um, but also if, if it is, if that was something that you have seen um, from people who are close to serial killers in your research. Yeah, I think you got that exactly right. Uh, when the mask is off, I I think Emily is, she feels, I think, like she's being assailed by that story. I think she, she says, you know, she sees it on the news. She sees it in the papers. His photo follows her everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and when presented with the opportunity to know more, she doesn't want to. Mm-hmm. Um and that seemed realistic to me. I, I think in stories I've heard of real life when this happens, which is quite rare, by the way, mm-hmm. but in the few instances where it has happened, I think in the very early stages, what I've usually heard is um, a reaction of first of disbelief mm-hmm. of no, 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 no. Like he wouldn't, he wouldn't do that. I know him. This is a mistake which is a normal reaction to have. Like, it's really weird if you're told your, your, your friend or relative or paramour is a serial killer and you're like, yeah, sounds about right. Makes uh, sense. Yeah, sure. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I can see it. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it's extremely natural to be like, no, I don't think so. Cause you wouldn't know them otherwise. Right. Um, and, uh, and then I think, I think there's a reaction of self-protection mm-hmm. uh, because at the end of the day, he's been caught. He's not going to injure anyone else. It it's not like her knowing all the Emily knowing all the details isn't going to help anyone, but it may harm her. Mm-hmm. And so I think she already has enough to process. Um, 
knowing that what he was what he was doing this entire time uh without adding you know all these 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 specifics on top right i do think that i mean i personally if it were me i mean i always want to know everything but yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because it's like a control thing i want to know every detail yeah. but um but, but I certainly in her shoes, even if I, if I didn't want to know all the information initially, I, there is no world in which I wouldn't Google the hell out of him like a couple mm -hmm. of years later. And so she may do that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think in the very, very early stages, she has to pick up whatever pieces are left of her life and she has to take care of whatever is left of her mind. And, uh, and so she, she, yeah, I think there's a layer of self-protection here. Yeah. In, in a way, when I was reading it, it almost reminded me. So earlier this year, I read Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Detterer. Yeah. Um, and this, obviously, that is what do we do with the art or the the connection that we have formed with monsters. And um, but that obviously is talking about, you know, like famous people that we have, yeah. you know, parasocial relationships with and things like that. But this is like the most extreme version of that. Like, yeah. what do we do with the memories and the idea of this person that we had or the gifts that he gave her or these moments that they had? How do we process them and how do do we move through that and i that whole part was just like oh my gosh like I, I, yeah literally emily almost did me in so yeah. <laughs> but uh, i'm so glad that you bring up this book monster is a fan's dilemma uh because i think m my inclination to write a serial killer story and to ask this question of where does the love go Mm -hmm. What do we do with the love that we had for someone who turns out to have been very harmful and cruel to people like us mm -hmm. uh, and to people in general? Um, that's a reflection that's been on my mind since Me Too happened. Mm -hmm. uh, and I started writing The Quiet Tenant in um, March or April of 2020. Mm -hmm. And my last quote-unquote normal day of work before we all went home mm -hmm. um was harvey weinstein's sentencing hearing in oh, new wow. york city wow. yeah. i had uh, yeah i had covered his trial his criminal trial in new york and i was in court twice the opening arguments and um the sentencing and um and there was this i mean this idea of that the, that well-respected men who were previously well-liked by people were revealed to be harming people, uh, including people like me, was really something that was on my mind. I think it was a very natural topic to have on your mind mm -hmm. between the years 2017 and now. And, um, and, uh, and, and I think that trickled down to all the dynamics between uh, Aiden and Emily, because in a way she has to wonder that that on a extremely up close and personal level. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, to try to maybe switch gears a little <laughs> bit and talk about something a little more fun. Um, yeah. I did want to talk to you about your audiobook because I am an yes. audiobook listener. And I have to say that The Quiet Tenant is one of the best audiobook productions I have ever listened to. Oh, the, thank you. The full cast narration is tremendous. It is so good. These voices just, and I, I think maybe that also really gives credit to how real I felt like these characters were when they have these voices and they are individual, unique women speaking their stories to you. Like you can't 
feel anything other than them being real. Um, and so, but you actually played one of the characters in the audiobook. Yes. And so I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what that process was like, what it was like to record it, and if you had any other creative control over the audiobook. Yeah. Oh, I, I thank you so much for appreciating the audiobook, by the way. I, I, I'm a fan of the audiobook. And I can say it because the person who really shaped it is uh, the, the, the audiobook producer, uh, Dan, that I, I worked with, uh, Dan Zitt at Penguin Random House. Um, he, he really was is a driving force be behind this audiobook. So he was the one who decided we would have this full cast narration. So a different narrator for each character. And I was like, really? Cause like, you know, there are three main perspectives and then multiple others with Aiden's former victims. And so everyone gets their own narrator. And, uh, and I, I thought that was tremendously exciting. Uh, and because Aiden's former victims, unfortunately, are many. Uh, we had a lot of short chapters to record. And so Dan asked me, hey, do you want to record one? <laughs> and I said yes immediately, because that sounded very exciting. Um, and then 24 hours later, I emailed Dan and I said, Dan, you, you do know that I'm not a native English speaker, right? Like, <laughs> And I was like, but I don't really sound like a stereotypical French person, but like to the trained ear, there might be a little something like it's, uh, you know, people who like listen all day to people talking, they can like tell it immediately mm -hmm. if you have an accent. Um, and, but, but it came down to the, the, the only criteria was, you know, would there be any reason why a victim of Aiden wouldn't sound like me? And there wasn't like, if there was a lady with a vague French accent in the Hudson Valley, he wouldn't have any problems killing her. So yeah. You know that was uh, that was fine, so I was able to narrate one of Aiden's former victims. That was really fun. Um, I Dan directed me brilliantly, so we got it in three takes, um, and I chose a very short chapter because I didn't <laughs> want to overestimate my abilities. <laughs> um, but it was it was very thrilling to be able to to play a part in the audiobook. But the real merit, though, in terms of performance, goes to the performers who actually voice. Um, the the rest of the the, the characters and I actually did uh, have some creative control. Uh, Dan sent me a few recordings, you know, a few tapes, and we talked together and we narrowed it down and um, to to these performers. And I I, I was very lucky. Um, my top choices narrates the audiobook. So. That's so cool. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was really happy. Uh, it was really cool. And I think I, they've done a tremendous job. It's a really special. Uh, it was actually really, I, I listened to the audiobook around the time of the release, uh, a little ahead of time, probably. And um, it was really intense for me to <laughs> hear my words spoken back to me <laughs> in a good way. But it was, yeah. It was a little uh, almost overwhelming, you know. It's a very intense audiobook, that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, I am I'm literally explaining how physically stressed out I was by it, but it it truly is such a fantastic audiobook and I think all of your efforts shine so brightly in it because it really really is cool. Um but are there are there any other books that you have working on or what's uh -huh. on the what's on the horizon for you? Um, I have finished another novel, <laughs> oh, yeah. so, uh, it's also in the psychological thriller realm and what can I say about it? Let's see. <laughs> my idea, <laughs> my idea was that 
The Quiet Tenant is set during the winter, and obviously it's in very sort of stripped down settings. There's a garden mm-hmm. shed, and there's a house, and there's a bar, you mm-hmm. know, and it's very normal daily life settings. And, and I had a lot of fun writing them because it's very interesting to write. For example, Rachel has a level of knowledge of her surroundings that is really heightened. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really fun. But for the next one, I decided I wanted to go somewhere warm and glamorous <laughs> <laughs> and beautiful and luxurious. And so it led me to the desert in Utah in a beautiful oh. venue. So, um, yeah, it's been fun. So I finished it. Um, more things, you know, need to, to keep happening on that side. But, uh, mm-hmm. the goal was to finish something before the quiet tenant came out. And I sent my agent a draft of something new the day before the quiet tenant came out. And then the morning of the day the quiet tenant came out, I broke my laptop irreparably. So, oh, wow. so, <laughs> so it was truly a way to, I didn't do it on purpose, but it was a way to turn the page, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> new era, new laptop. That's amazing. Well, I cannot wait to read it when it does finally come out. Um, but yeah, that I would imagine that writing a book while you're doing like a book tour would be very difficult because you're having to think about your last project while you're still trying to write your new project. And there's just so many like characters and people and everything just swirling through your mind. That would be very overwhelming. My God, yes. And and I think I think trying to write when you're also dealing with the first big wave of feedback, basically from this work that you've just put out would be mm-hmm. really tricky, I think. Yeah. So it was really good advice to try to finish. And it can, it wasn't, it doesn't have to be final, right? It's just a draft, mm-hmm. but it, it, it just having something finished by the time the book comes out, it really helps. And then, you know, when the world starts moving on and rudely reading other books than mine, then I, it doesn't feel so weird. Right. <laughs> you know, I have something else to, to focus on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what are you reading right now? Are there, are there any authors or books that you, that inspire you or that you want to shout out? Yeah, I'm bringing up my list. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, I'm actually, to truthfully answer your question, I'm reading a book called Adelaide uh, by, I might mispronounce her name, to be fair, my name. (laughs) You pronounce it perfectly, by the way. You have have no idea how much anxiety I've had (laughs) over like, I have to do this. I have to do her justice. Like, I speak zero French. It is so bad. You pronounced it beautifully. It was perfect. I'm not, I'm never offended, however people pronounce it, but I I do want to give you credit. You did you did a beautiful job. Okay, so yeah. I'm reading Adelaide by Genevieve Wheeler. Yeah. Yes. I don't oh. know. It's <laughs> I want to pronounce it the French way, but so I'm sure you've because it was it, it was very successfully yes. released a few months ago, and uh-huh. um and it's so interesting because it's a book about a pretty toxic relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but really from the perspective, like from the perspective of the woman who's going through it. And, uh, so there's romance and infatuation and everything. And it's completely intoxicating. I think I've read half between last night and now, which is extremely fast for me. I'm not usually a fast reader. Yeah. What else have I read? I read recently how to sell a haunted house by Grady Hendrix. We are big Grady Hendrix fans at Friendly City Books. I am a huge Grady Hendrix fan. <laughs> I actually, I loved um, the Southern Book Club's Guide to 
slaying vampires. Slaying vampires. Thank you. Oh my God. (laughs) Love this book. Can't remember the title. Uh, (laughs) I truly... I truly did love it. And just the the way that he used the vampire as a reflection on the American serial killer as an archetype was, mm-hmm. uh, was really great. And so, and I loved how to sell a haunted house. I thought it, I actually cried reading it like, mm-hmm. like hot tears. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I rarely cry reading books. I certainly wasn't expecting to have like such an emotional time reading, uh, a horror novel about haunted dolls and puppets, yeah. <laughs> but he uses it as the way, a way to tell such a, a powerful story of like intergenerational trauma and how family secrets haunt younger generations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I thought it was wonderfully done. So I really loved that. What else mm-hmm. have I read recently? I read a book called what mother won't tell me, which is translated from the German and mm-hmm. it's going to be published soon, I think. And it's a captivity story. Actually, it's oh. two children. It's two children who have always lived on the Island with their very, very strict parents, perhaps a little too strict, uh, like isolated from the rest of the world. But then mm-hmm. one day something happens and they get a peak at the outside and their world comes crashing down. Mm-hmm. And I really, I really loved it. I was totally hooked. That's a book where I stayed up until 2am reading it, mm. uh, which again happens very rarely to me because if it's time to sleep, it's I'm going to sleep. <laughs> That's <laughs> how you know a book is good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really it never like I could be reading the like denouement of gone girl for the first time. And like, if I'm, trying to fall asleep i'm gonna fall asleep it's really not a reflection on how captivating the material is but this book kept me up and then i have Mm -hmm. two more books yes (laughs) i read um beware the woman by megan abbott which i am it's funny i met megan abbott's agent a couple months ago and i said i'm megan abbott's biggest fan and he said they all and he said they all say that (laughs) no but i really am (laughs) and i'm like no you don't understand (laughs) well didn't she yeah she actually is the the blurb on the front of your book (laughs) yes so that's amazing that was a really yeah that was a really big moment by the way her agent is is a lovely man uh he was he said it in a very funny warm uh way um but uh so i i i adore megan abbott she's my biggest inspiration uh as a writer um and she's when when she blurred my book i was like well nothing else matters now (laughs) (laughs) that's fine (laughs) whatever else happens we're good um and her 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 most recent book beware the woman really had me totally in its thrall and it's about a woman who is newly pregnant and she spends july 4th weekend with her husband and his parents in, I mean, in his father in their house. And, uh, and it's, it's everything you've heard about, right? Like a really smart book about bodily autonomy at a crucial time, but also she writes very sensorially. And I think she really captured like summer in this Mm -hmm. book, you know, like the, the room in the Airbnb that is somehow always damp and like the, <laughs> you know, the, the, the local haunt, like the ice cream st- shop you go to every year. That's a little stuck in time. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, it, in your head, it only exists in the summer, mm-hmm. like all, all of that, like the citronella, you know, to repel the mosquitoes, like all those sensations of summer. Mm-hmm. Um, she really captured them. And the final one, 
<laughs> was a book I read earlier this summer called Lucky Dogs. Uh-huh. Um, and it is a novel that is inspired by a real-life uh, part of the Harvey Weinstein uh, scandal. And it's it was um, in the novel, it's a, it's a, a woman who's an actress, and uh, she was working on a book, and she was going to talk about this producer, and he sort of uh, sends, like, uh, former intelligence agents, basically, to try to stop her. And it's a book that, it's a literary novel, but it's evidently about criminality. So for me, it's, it's, a, it's a crime novel. It reads, mm-hmm. like, a, it reads like a crime novel. Um, it's, fu- it's a furious, amazingly written novel. And it starts in Paris, where I'm mm-hmm. from, and um, it has some of the best, like, most accurate descriptions of Paris I've ever read in a book i was like oh yeah like that's the (laughs) paris i know like that's the (laughs) you know the little coffee shop that like uh, locals Mm -hmm. know about like it's in there so 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 all this i've read some really good books lately it's been a good uh but there's so many so many of my favorite authors have new books out this year so It has been an incredible year for books. I mean, truly, like working at the bookstore has been the worst because every time I open a new (laughs) box of books, I'm like, I want 12 of these. And I mean, as the book buyer too, like going through all the catalogs and Mm -hmm. having to choose between like, okay, I I can only get so many. I mean, it is devastating sometimes to have to be like, I'm sorry, I can't like, I I want them all. And And I mean, it's really hard. Yeah, and this this fall too is going to be <clears throat> such a good season. So I mean, I mean, there's a new Jessica Knoll to look mm-hmm. forward to. Uh, Lauren Groff has a book coming out. Mm-hmm. Like it's like uh, earlier uh, this year, Ashley Audrain also had a book. Like mm-hmm. I was like, I can't read fast enough for yeah. all. <laughs> it was uh, it, it's really been an incredible year in books. Yeah. Okay, <clears throat> for you though. So Mona Wad is coming out with a new book like next next week or something like that. Um, you absolutely need to listen to or read one of Mona okay. Watt's books. I just, I mean, any of them, you can choose. I will not tell you which one, but <laughs> check her out. You will love her. It is. Okay. You guys I, should I basically to. be best friends. So yeah. <laughs> excellent. No, I need to, I actually know of her work because I believe Paul Tremblay blurbed one of her books or she blurbed one of his or possibly both. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a, he, he's a supporter of her work. And so I often see her books, uh, uh, crop up on and and I've she's been on my list for like ages so now I will finally get to it <laughs> thank yeah, you <laughs> absolutely uh, her audiobooks are one of some of my favorites because they're narrated Ooh. by uh Sophia Moss who is one of my favorite narrators she just has this like incredible voice that I just I die over every time but Excellent. so good okay I'll um, listen to that I actually I'm <laughs> almost in the market for a new audiobook because I think I only have two hours left on the one I've been listening I've been listening to oh my god I've been listening to <laughs> The audiobook of a novel that was written a couple of years, a few years ago, a handful of years ago, I think, by Michael Imperioli, who plays mm. Christopher Moltisanti in The Sopranos. Yes. And he wrote a novel called The Perfume Burned His Eyes oh. um, about it's it's like a coming of age uh, novel about a boy who is raised by a single mom. And they don't have a ton of money until one day they inherit money. And so they move to the Upper East Side and he goes to this fancy new school and he lives in this fancy new building. And he's a fish out of water, but he creates this friendship slash slightly dysfunctional mentorship with this mysterious neighbor who happens to be Lou Reed. Mm. 
and uh, yeah, and 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 I was like, oh, I bet you Michael Imperioli probably narrated his own audiobook because <laughs> he's an Emmy, he's an Emmy-winning actor. Yeah, <laughs> and he did. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so it's it's been a real treat to listen to because he has a beautiful voice. Mm-hmm. Um, but so after when I'm done with that, I can move on to Mona Awad's uh, oh. audiobooks. Yes, but also for anyone who has not read The Quiet Tenant. First, The Quiet Tenant, then all these other great books, because I truly like talking to Rachel about this book has been so fun because we picked up on different things. And like we had so many so much fun just being like, do you think his in-laws knew like things like that, where it was just so engaging. Like if you have a book club, this is a book for a book club because you will never run out of things to talk about. You will be it'll be one o'clock in the morning. You will have gone through all the wine and you will still be like, let's talk about this. Um, So I highly recommend it for that, but also for spooky season. It is just if you go through October without reading this book, you're doing something wrong. So um, but thank you, Clemence, for for talking with me today about all of this. This has just been such a joy. Um, Oh, my gosh. Hang out with me. Thank you. Thank you for the great shout out. Thank you for the great questions. Thank you for <laughs> letting me go on and on. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, we can um, talk all day. We can talk all day. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I could, I could stay for more hours and, and just <laughs> chat about everything. Uh, but no, thank you so much for, for, for such a wonderful interview and for having me on the podcast and for being so awesome in, uh, in Jackson. Also, how fun was that <laughs> festival, by the way? How it was hot so were good. you? <laughs> I, I have, there are a few experiences in my life where I think I've ever been hotter. I mean, what was it like 106 or something like that? Yeah. It, was, it felt like the sun. Like yeah. it was, <laughs> yeah. I, really we were hot. outside the entire day. Oh my God. And, um, so we were outside for the entire day and, uh, I think it was like seven o'clock in the morning was our call time. And we were there until like five and I didn't go inside once. And I was like, I can't because if I get an air conditioning and I remember what air conditioning feels like, <laughs> I won't go back outside. So, oh my God, you stayed outside the whole oh, day, yeah. the whole, wow. I mean, I took, I took a bathroom break, but other than that, That's yeah. allowed. we'll allow it. We'll let, we'll allow one. <laughs> the one. I was a coward. I was like, I was indoors as much as I could. <laughs> in my defense i was wearing two skirts because um my my top skirt was really see-through mm-hmm. and i realized that the morning uh in my hotel room and i was like let's not give jackson a show <laughs> <laughs> so i wore my other skirt underneath it and it was really it was an interesting choice in, in this heat to be wearing two skirts but what can i say <laughs> fashion yeah. dictates what fashion dictates <laughs> yeah we we it was at the very end of the day that we met you and we were all like oh my god we look so gross like we can't look I gross mean, for Clemence like, you didn't look gross but also <laughs> I've been you had been outside all day I was cheating <laughs> oh my god but yeah it was a wonderful day uh such a special event so and thank you for coming all the way to Mississippi to hang out with us that was really it, it means so much to us when authors take the time to come down here so thank you oh, for it doing was a- it it was a treat. Honestly, everyone was so like, it was such a great community of booksellers, of readers, of writers, of volunteers at the festival. It was mm-hmm. really, really cool. Like it was really a passionate crowd. And I have, I have nothing but gratitude for people who, who value books so much and work so hard to make them happen. So thank you. Well, thank you. That means a lot to have you say that. So thank you. We are uh, 
we're trying out there. So, well, thanks again. And uh, until next time, happy reading. Hi, friends. It's Emily. Thanks for listening. Support Friendly City Books and other independent bookstores like us by shopping online at bookshop.org and libro.fm. Find us on social media at Friendly City Books. And don't forget to like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Happy reading!